episode of Sustainalytics Sustainable Finance Solutions podcast, a monthly roundup of the latest transactions and developments in the sustainable finance space globally. In each episode, we take you through some of the latest news that caught our eye, noteworthy transactions that has hit the market, and cap off with discussing regulatory updates. This 20-minute roundup is the curated shortlist for a download on what's happening in the sustainable finance space globally, and it may just spark some ideas for future deals and transactions. This episode is hosted by Nick and Cheryl, who lead the sales effort in Asia-Pacific. But first, let's look at some news. So Nick, what are some of the headline numbers coming through for July? Yeah, look, a huge uh, huge month in July. I guess we're recording this. We're nearly into October already, so catching up. But it's been difficult keeping track of all the different things that are happening at the moment in, uh, in these markets. But I guess the biggest news out of July for me was the fact that it was the biggest month thus far of green bonds issued in the year. Uh, close to close to 20 billion. So a healthy new 25 new issuers coming to uh, coming to market and joining the market in July 2020, um, and still a lot of re- repeat issuers as well. And it seems as if there's a lot of ongoing market potential momentum from the EU talking more and more about uh, issuing green bonds. We've seen Germany and, and other uh, sovereigns uh, come out at further diversification across the corporate space. Uh, even Moody's has increased their social and sustainability bond forecast up another 50, uh, 50 billion. So we'll see how that all pans out for the, for the end of the year. But I think momentum is good. And that's what I really took away as a key point from, uh, from July. The other thing, just to pick up on the green stimulus point again, I read an excellent report, and I would thoroughly recommend this to our listeners from our friends at ING, talking about Asia's lamentable green COVID response. It's a bit more nuanced than that, so definitely take a look. We'll put the link in the in the show notes. Um, but really, it talks about COVID giving governments a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to, to really relook really at some of their environmental benefits that they can get from having to make stimulus packages and, and spend money and cash, so to speak. But how can you do that in a green way? And there's growing, growing evidence of the multiplier effects of doing that in a green way and a sustainable way to further have a positive uh, impact on economies. So the, the ING report talks a lot about that, different countries uh, rating and, and ranking them uh, and about the multiplier effect for green being, uh, being higher. So that one is definitely worth uh, checking out. And it's something that picks up on uh, some issues, green stimulus and why that we've talked a lot about uh, this year uh, thus far. And, and what about yourself, Cheryl? Any uh, Anything jump out in your reading over the month? Yes, apart from social and sustainability issuances really picking up, as you have pointed out, forecasts have also you know, increased and flows into sustainable funds continue to grow as well. So a very encouraging sign. On the investor side, an article from Morningstar reports that sustainable fund flows hit a record in Q2, and this more than doubled, heightened by interest in, in ESG issues and new fund launches. So case in point, HSBC launched their first low-carbon fund in Taiwan, so HSBC Global Asset Management, um, they launched their first low-carbon fund, which invests in bonds issued by companies with lower carbon footprints to satisfy local investors' increasing appetite for responsible investment. How they calculate carbon footprint of a company is they take the carbon intensity and they divide it by the company's carbon emissions by their revenue. And to really to steal a line from uh, an article in The Asset, though COVID-19 will eventually fade away, the lessons and experiences from the pandemic are sure to have a lasting impact and are poised to reshape the way companies and investors examine the viability of businesses against pressing global issues. Did you see anything similar like that as well? Well, I, I must uh, keep up more with some of those developments, Cheryl, and good to see those funds continuing to attract a lot of, uh, a lot of flows. 
Yeah, I guess a little bit of a different tack to that. Just wanted to highlight something to our listeners that um, stood out to me over the month, which was an article in the Harvard Business Review from actually Sustainalytics Head of Research. So um, something that we grapple with on a day-to-day basis is to explain what we do and how we do it. And it's often a bit of a, I'd call it, to use the word again, a non-nuanced debate where a lot of folks just say, oh, well, the providers of ESG ratings just have different methods, different scales, how are we meant to make sense of that? And we always say, well, it's good to have diversity of of views. And it um, is often the case that the people making those criticisms may not actually dig into the details of what MSCI may be measuring, what Sustainalytics is measuring, and what we're really trying to achieve in that. So I really like this article that Simon McMahon put together again, our head of research. And just to kind of paraphrase a few comments, which I think are are useful points in terms of the context to a lot of the issues that we're talking about. And a lot of bankers that we speak to when they're thinking, how do I use a ESG risk rating from Sustainalytics? Do I attach it to a bond? Do I attach it to a loan? Do we support a company to use it for their uh, communications um, type of activity? So just a couple of things that I really wanted to note from that is that, look, at the end of the day, you know, ratings is a challenging um, is a challenging job and challenging work. There's no real uniform requirements, as we know, around disclosure, you know, globally, even though the EU is the most advanced in, um, in doing that. So versus a financial report, you know, the, the inputs as such that we're dealing with are fundamentally less structured, less complete, and or of lower quality in some, sometimes versus the financial sort of picture of a company and much more um, nuanced, again, to use, um, to use that word. So the lack of consistent rules, metrics that are used, you know, just makes our job a bit a bit harder. So I think that's always good to just put that context around uh, what we do from a ratings perspective. Um, the other thing is, you know, sometimes business leaders complain about survey fatigue and lots of companies coming out and wanting to get information on ESG. Um, and that's certainly not our approach. We, we don't actually take a, a surveying approach, but we understand how companies can get sort of fatigued by that. But overall, uh, look, we really welcome the, the ongoing interest in, in what we do from a ratings perspective, you know, bring on the scrutiny that'll drive further innovation across the whole uh, industry. And really what we're doing is, is seeking to make our ratings more and more relevant um, and they're becoming more and more high profile than ever. So if you didn't catch the last podcast, the comprehensive ratings we do have is about 4,000 of those is actually in the public domain and that's creating more and more interest about uh, about these topics. So do check out, we'll put it in the, in the show notes and check that out for our listeners in terms of really interesting perspective from an inside view as to what we're trying to achieve and some of the challenges of uh, putting those ratings uh, together. And then um, Cheryl, on the supply chain side, I think you noticed a few, uh, a few interesting developments in that space. That's right. So apart from you know what you mentioned about ESG risk ratings, incorporating that into your financing or your investment decisions, another trend that we see is uh, on the topic of incorporating ESG risk ratings into your supply chain. So there's been a really comprehensive article from SMP talking about supply trade finance programs. So companies like Nike, Airbus, and Orsted are now asking their suppliers to disclose data related to climate change, deforestation, and water security issues um, in their supplier engagement strategies. And they are working with their bankers to offer a supply chain finance uh, program. So supply chain finance typically involves incorporating ESG criteria into the funding conditions. So essentially, suppliers are rewarded if they perform well against certain ESG goals, um, such as through better lending rates, a carrot, if you may, if you may think of it, uh, to incentivize them to do better. 
the opportunity for this, uh, as predicted by S&P, is remarkable with, you know, sustainable supply chain finance, you know, expected to reach about $660 billion, presenting over $6 billion of opportunity in revenue for financial service providers. Levi's, for example, they were one of the first uh, companies to introduce sustainable supply chain finance program back in 2014. But because the number of corporate buyers that followed publicly was quite small, um, it, you know, it, it may not have really caught your attention. But you know, in more recent years, we have seen supply chain finance programs with Walmart as well as Puma. And maybe as mentioned in earlier episodes, Sustainalytics, we ourselves have also made significant investments into thinking about how we can serve the supply chain world. And we will look to share a little bit more about this on um, in upcoming episodes. Any other interesting news to mention, Nick? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a couple of other reports, lots of reports over the month, so, so lots of reading. Um, something else which, which caught my eye was on um, Oxfam actually released a report in relation to green bond reporting or making green bonds work. So Whilst I think it'd be fair to say I don't agree with maybe everything that was put forward in that report, I think it's a good thing to balance up some of our reading, which is mostly positive, and um, identifying some, let's say, improvement areas around reporting. That was focused on issuers in Asia and how some of that reporting can be deeper, can be more sophisticated. Uh, and we look forward, as that's a service that Sustainalytics provides as well, working with issuers on that journey going forward. So it's an interesting read to the extent that it talks about some of the improvement areas that can be um, be furthered in relation to green bond reporting. The other uh, the other quick one to note was just a quick plug for uh, for CBI and again we'll talk about the great conference they had in early September in our next uh, in our next episode but the agri criteria uh, or agricultural criteria was also formalized uh, over the, the month of July for CBI so definitely check that out it is worth um, having a look at it and agri is, is underrepresented in the whole sustainable finance space and definitely the green bond space. So we're keen to work with issuers and banks that, that see opportunities in agri and there's many agri uh, considerable sectors, certainly across Asia where myself and, and Cheryl, uh, we're based, that looks, you know, that, that is agri focused and some, some really interesting opportunities there. All right, quickly moving on to our next section on sustainable finance transactions that has hit the market in August. Nick, what are some of the interesting green bond deals that caught your eye? Yeah, Cheryl, so a pretty good smorgasbord again, should we say. Um, didn't maybe look at all of these in a huge amount of detail given the number and I was um, been looking at all the reports that I've just mentioned in, the, in a lot of detail, but a really good selection of deals that have come out. And just a couple to note. In particular, and we worked on both of these at Sustainalytics providing the second party opinions. Uh, the first one was for Alphabet or, or better known as you know, Google. So they released one of the biggest sustainability bonds, if not the biggest sustainability bond for corporate uh, that had been issued before. And lots of really interesting themes about using re more recycled materials and some of the products that they, um, uh, that they make and some really interesting social areas about affordable housing and also some of the programs they wanted to support around some uh, Black Lives Matter themes. Check that one out. Uh, Visa as well raised a, a significant green bond over, over July and a lot of common types of areas that we talk about on the podcast in terms of what's being financed. But the really interesting one uh, was some R&D in relation to consumer spending sort of habits and consumer behaviours and how they can be enhanced to be maybe more sustainable from an environmental perspective and interesting to see a company like Visa trying to engage with organizations doing that kind of um, work so that's definitely worth checking out it continued to be a strong month for property which which also continues to be one of the mainstays of the green bond market so CPI property issued uh, also we saw uh, Genro issue 
over over the month in the China uh, real estate or the high yield sector. So that was uh, that was great. Um, uh, that was good to see. Asiendas REIT did a green bond here in uh, in Singapore. Um, moving along, we also saw uh, a couple of uh, sovereigns come to market. So obviously Germany has has come to market. In Hungary, there were some more discussions about bonds there in, in Georgia, uh, and I think even uh, Isle of Man, there was some talk. Uh, there was some talk there in Sweden. I think we mentioned um, last month. So good to see some ongoing activity, ongoing talk of, of more and more bonds in the sovereign space, which are important catalyzers of the market. A um, couple of banks, again, another mainstay of the market, China Development Bank. We also had ANZ issuing a uh, first bank in Australia to do a uh, STG bond uh, with some interesting use of proceeds, COVID-related and, and otherwise, and that was something else that we worked on. Uh, renewables, again, Brookfield came to, uh, came to market. Um, again, Mercury in New Zealand, good to see New Zealand, seeing some activity um, there. Uh, Hannon Armstrong on the solar space. And also just shifting gears to Korea, uh, Lotte came out with another bond. We had worked with them a, a few years ago, so that's great to see. Something else in the chemical space. So what gets us excited, I guess, in the, in the sustainable finance team is more diversification, different sectors, different uses of proceeds, and that whole evolution of the market. So we saw Bayer issue a couple of months ago on the chemical side, uh, a company called Altec um, also, uh, also issued on the green side for some similar type of, uh, of themes. Uh, Credit Agricole, through one of its subsidiaries, did a covered bond. So again, not only different styles of use of proceeds, different sectors, but also different um, structures and good to see some covered bonds uh, getting done there. Um, we also worked with Coca-Cola in Mexico. So following on from what Pepsi had done earlier in the, the year or even late last year at times uh, merging into one uh, these days, that was really good to see some different types of use of proceeds there and recycled materials. And also just one to note, um, the Warrington Borough Council uh, in the UK launched one of the first resident-funded green bonds. So that's an interesting model. And um, starting to read and pick up um, more different types of, of structures getting financed either through retail-type investors or through this groundswell of, of public support um, in certain in certain areas. So let's see if that creates a more of a crowdfunding-style model to, to some of these instruments. Let's, um, let's see. And last but not least, um, another bond that we worked on, so we've had a particularly busy month, uh, was MTR. And that was one of the biggest green bonds that have been done to date in, in Hong Kong. And what I really liked about this, I should say, it was a sustainability bond. So it incorporated some, some very interesting aspects of, of social, such as some rent uh, fare uh, reductions and waivers for tenants and MTR um, stations, uh, some facilities for mothers, some fare reductions, um, some SME support, some really different type of things, definitely connected to their business and a really good precedent um, transaction. So we're very pleased to, to work on that. So that's a lot on the bond side, Cheryl. What about, uh, what about loans? Any time to look at loans over the bumper month? <laughs> Yes, definitely. So uh, property continues to look to be very strong uh, in Asia. In Singapore, uh, MS Commercial has secured a SGD 1.95 billion green loan to refinance parts of Marina One development, which is probably the largest uh, signed kind of property loan to date. Over in Hong Kong, Swire Properties also got a HKD 1 billion green loan from OCBC following that green bond in 2018. OCBC has been very active in the region this far with a lot of green green loans. And you know, to note, I think they participated in more than 20 
green loans and sustainability linked loans uh, since the start of this year. Um, the bank also made their first green loan in South Korea in their uh, in the property sector, uh, having a 1.15 billion won facility to MNG Real Estate, which will be used to refinance their investments in Northgate, which is a green office building in Seoul's central business district. Renewables, uh, this is something that we worked on, uh, particularly in our region for Morawara, which is a renewable energy wind farm project that was sold uh, to private equity firm Partners Group, which actually owned the 220 megawatt first stage facility in Western Victoria as well. Also following on the trend for renewables, DBS also finances the solar project for SEMCorp for a 60 megawatt floating solar project in Singapore. So DBS provided over 40 million Singapore dollars to build one of the world's largest floating solar photovoltaic projects in Tenga Reservoir in Singapore. This project is likely to be completed in 2021 and is expected to produce sufficient energy to power 16,000 four-room flats in Singapore uh, and bringing about an estimated 32 kilotons of carbon dioxide emissions reduction annually. Over in Europe, um, in Spain particularly, Telenex Group says they will finance two solar power plants uh, via Euro 250 million credit insured project bond. This is the seventh solar power plant investment by Telenex. So good to see renewables continue to grow and drive the market. And last but not least, we have US-based company Motif, which manufactures chassis to, to convert trucks to electric vehicles. So more action uh, on the transport side. Very good to see, particularly in the US, where you know almost every adult has uh, a car um that's about it for the green for green uh, in the month of august i think i'll move on now to social bonds and loans nothing particular to highlight for social bonds this month just that education provider pearson published a sdg framework which centered around uh, providing education and access to education uh, as well as social economic uh, advancement and empowerment they did a revolving credit facility back in february to finance such initiatives there also is more activity heating up in developing countries like myanmar asia green development bank which is one of the largest banks in myanmar signed a usd 25 million financing agreement in a local currency with pact global microfinance fund to offer loans to farmers in the agriculture business over in Peru, microfinance investment company Symbiotics launched a USD 10 billion social bond issuance for Abaco, which is Peru's savings and loans cooperative, to finance SMEs uh, to provide trade services in the agri-sector. And also maybe to mention the Global Compact Investing Network, GIIN, has published guidelines to help impact investors understand how they can best support their investees and enterprises through the coronavirus crisis. So the report is uh, the third uh, issue brief of a four-part series, identifies short, medium and long-term challenges brought about the pandemic and provides some strategies to help navigate them. They interviewed 21 asset owners, asset managers and service providers. It might be a good read if you're in the microfinance impact space. Moving on to sustainability link transactions, which is a new segment in our podcast. Tell us what's brewing, Nick. Yeah, we should have a virtual uh, drum roll for a new uh, a new segment or some some virtual fireworks or something, Cheryl. But um, maybe we'll we'll try and get those for the next uh, next episode. But um, really, really happy that there's uh, a transaction and more transactions which we will have to talk about in the sustainability link space. Um, I'm talking about bonds. That is sustainability link loans continues to be a, a good segment uh, in the podcast and a, and a big segment of the market. But in terms of sustainability-linked bonds, so 
We noted and we saw, and we've talked a little bit about this a couple of months ago, ICMA released the sustainability link bond principles. Um, and since then, we've now seen two transactions come to market, which have formally confirmed alignment to those. Susano, which is a LATAM-based pulp and paper or forestry company. And then we'll talk about the second one, which is Novartis, which Sustainalytics worked on maybe more in the next podcast. And we'll sort of break down a little bit more on the on the SLBs, um, so to speak. But just extremely glad that there's traction. We see that there will be more to come, so definitely stay tuned. Um, and a couple of points from the Susano one was all about emissions reduction per tonne of, of production and a 25 basis point step up, not a step down, uh, just a step up, so a little bit similar to the annual structure that, that we've done last year. Um, the other one, just to briefly mention, was uh, BNP launched a pretty innovative bond in Australia, which was climate linked to an index of, of companies. And I guess the coupon will adjust to that uh, over time. We also saw, saw a brief a brief article about a Japanese property company. Not sure which one, um, but talk of, uh, of some Japan property uh, companies or, or companies in that sector looking to do sustainability-linked bonds as well. So definitely watch that space. I know I say that a lot, but really watch this space for uh, sustainability-linked bonds. And I think over time that will be a, a bigger feature of what we're going through in the, in the podcast. In terms of sustainability-linked loans, just a couple of things to mention. Uh, so renewables or power, a firm called uh, Naturgy did a billion-dollar sustainability-linked loan in Spain. Essen in Germany. Quite often, it's difficult to work out what the KPIs were for these, either KPIs bespoke or or, or otherwise. The next one is uh, is Turner in terms of a um, linked to the sustainable development goals and and things uh, things like that. And I think um, some different aspects of its of its own uh, ESG rating there. Paper, we talked about uh, Susano on the link bond side, a company called Impressus in or CMPC. I'm sure I'm saying that wrong, so apologies to our Spanish listeners and speakers there. A paper firm, although you can't see any specifics on, on the KPI from the announcement uh, that I saw. And quite an interesting one, uh, Trill Impact released a, it was the first Nordic sustainability-linked leveraged buyout loan. So that's a, definitely a mouthful to, to say. So it looks as if what we're seeing in terms of the broadening and diversification of, say, labelled green is also starting to happen on the sustainability link side. So again, sustainability link, lots of different elements of flexibility and even using it in a structured transaction such as a buyout scenario, that's definitely noteworthy uh, over the month. The last one uh, for sustainability link loans was uh, Siemens Energy signed a, a $3 billion revolver, I think, uh, based, in, uh, based in Germany, linked to um, lost time injury frequency and greenhouse gas emission reductions. Um, so that's a, definitely a mouthful over the month. Uh, Cheryl, what about transition? For transition, just one deal to mention this month. Steel production company Newcore Corp has secured $162.8 million in green bonds uh, to finance some of the work for their $1.3 billion plate steel plant in Bradenburg, Kentucky. Given that this, the nature is steel and is more energy intensive and one of the largest GHG contributing industries, we think this may be more suited for the transition label instead. In other transition-related news, hydrogen, again, is really poised to be the energy of the future with a new report from Australia's national science agency, CISRO. And the technical input and funding uh, from Boeing shows that clean hydrogen could be introduced to commercial aviation within five years, which is an incredible opportunity to reduce emissions significantly. Also to add, Airbus has revealed about two days ago their zero-emissions aircraft carrier concept, which is also powered by hydrogen. 
So for the last segment on transactions, any weird and wonderful label instruments or projects that emerged last month, Nick? Yeah, just a, a few things to complete the whole smorgasbord, I guess we've been running through here, Cheryl. The, I did note that JP Morgan actually came out with a, a list of 100 EU taxonomy eligible firms, um, so to speak. So I think that starts to plant the seed more for company-wide assessments to participate in aspects of, of these markets. We saw K2 a couple of months ago come out with an opinion related to it having green equity. So I think the company-wide and sort of equity space, I think, is poised to, to see a, a raft of different style of, of products come out. Uh, FX forwards for, for green-related instruments we've talked about before, a couple of project finance-specific deals which we've talked about before, so maybe not necessarily anything uh, totally new there. Uh, we also noted over the month that Deutsche Bank came out with an eligibility framework in terms of what's eligible for green and or social to plug some different types of banking products in that, uh, whether that's deposits and other things, and that's something that Sustainalytics works on with different uh, different banks uh, over time. So that's a couple of things to note. Um, I also thought it interesting, there was a company called Plenty in Australia, which seemed to be uh, an aggregator of, of green loans or a platform to assess where you can get green loans from, maybe more from a retail perspective. So again, another interesting element of uh, distribution uh, happening um, in the market and also just to note that HSBC also lodged some green deposits in India. So really good to see maybe similar types of products we've talked about before, but different markets. So that's uh, that's great to see. Um, on the regulatory side, um, I don't think I'll really go through anything this month, Cheryl, given the amount uh, of things we've talked about already, but look, we'll, we'll update next month. Lots of ongoing things in relation to EU and otherwise um, countries really revving up their sustainable finance efforts across Asia. So look, a huge month, and I think the month and the length of the podcast will evidence that in further episodes to uh, to come. Thanks, Nick. All right, folks, that's about all the time we have for this episode. Links to articles and reports mentioned in this episode can be found on our website. Do also follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter at Sustainalytics and send any questions or feedback our way. Thanks again for tuning in. Till next time.